All right, well, I'm very glad to be with, with you this morning. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be picking up there where I last left off preaching out of Colossians um, toward the end of the chapter. And just to remind you as you turn there, if you'll remember, we had gone past really the indicative section of the book, the, the, pra- or the theology about Christ, and moved into the practical section of the book, the imperatives, the commands that the Apostle Paul had given us and the Colossians um, as far as what to do with what we know to be true about Christ. As we received Christ is the hinge statement there in the book. As you received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And Paul's first sort of sub-imperative after that, explaining what it means to walk in Christ, was essentially a warning against deceptive false teaching, which would captivate the minds and the hearts and the consciences of God's people and submit them again to a man-centered way of thinking, a sort of legalism, a worldly slavery. And in a way, Paul dealt with what was the, the positive side of the Colossian heresy, their positive presentation, the things that they tried to entice the Colossian believers away from Christ for the sake of, things that... Things that offered uh, something more, something higher, a better spirituality, a better morality. And Paul's refutation of the offer of of worldly wisdom, this higher spirituality, this better moral practice through man-made religion is is to present in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2 the powerful working of God for the Colossians in their union with Christ, baptism into his death, forgiveness by his blood, resurrection with him through faith, all wrapped up into the single experience that we know as the circumcision of Christ. Paul's argument is that Christ is more than the more that these Colossian heretics offer. And Paul continues this discourse to the rest of chapter 2 that we'll look at today by addressing the negative aspect, the, the negative side of the Colossian heresy, which we would call spiritual intimidation. These false teachers were essentially accusing the saints or condemning them for not knowing enough, not having enough, not having experience enough, not being moral enough in Christ to be assured of their salvation. In addition to Satan's question, Satan's enduring question to God's people, did God really save? The Colossian heretics add the question, did God really save? Did God really save? Are you sure that what you possess in Christ is enough? If captivating the Colossians, through enticing them away from Christ with the things that they offer, if that doesn't work, perhaps intimidating the Colossians into submission, uh, making them fearful of their standing in Christ, perhaps that will. And, and that really is two sides of the same coin, which is an attack on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Savior. A uh, faith in Christ as the sole source of, of justification and the work of Christ as the means of salvation. We, we see similar arguments, similar attacks on Christ's sufficiency all around us today. And, and some of those teachings are easier to recognize than others. I mean, as biblical Christians, we get the idea that secular psychology, critical race theory, those things deny the sufficiency of Christ's blood to bring redemption or to bring reconciliation, to, to unify man in Christ. Um, we see as, as many of us have come out of these hyper-charismatic backgrounds, that mysticism and the prosperity gospel, power theology, a hyper-focus on signs and wonders, denies that Christians have all that pertains to life and godliness in Christ and his word. And I think yet as, as Reformed Christians even, with a wealth of knowledge and understanding that God has given us concerning his revelation, we are still and perhaps especially vulnerable to a subtle kind of legalistic thinking which makes our level of understanding or our level of devotion or the rigor that we carry out our religious duties the basis by which we have assurance of salvation. We can overreact against this epidemic of false conversions, of of cheap grace that we would call it, and end up going so far to the other side that we lose our own assurance in the process. We, as, as people who believe the doctrines of grace, of God's sovereign grace, should have the greatest assurance of salvation. Not because we are the reformed, but because we understand the unconditional and unchanging nature of God's work in Christ. From beginning to end, we know that salvation is all of God. But that's not always the case for us in our understanding. I've had a number of conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ, solid brothers and sisters, godly, fruitful brothers and sisters, many of them in our own congregation who struggle again and again to have assurance of God's salvation 
for them, of God's love for them in Christ. I think just as much as, as a false assurance of salvation is a problem in the church today, so is a lack of assurance of salvation for those who are truly in Christ. And we hear again and again in, in biblically sound sermons that we are to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. And truly assessing one's motives and beliefs is not inherently wrong. It's good to do that, as Scripture calls us to do that. But most passages addressed to the saints in the Bible are not telling us to look at ourselves. Most, most passages in the Bible are telling us to look outward and upward to Christ, not inward. And our, our constant self-examination to determine whether we really have the right beliefs, the right attitudes, the right motivations, whether we really mean it can become, if we're not careful, a life of, of pietism, of constant introspection, a hyper-focus on self that becomes a major distraction from the teachings and the promises of God in Christ. And we can end up basing our assurance on criteria that God never set for our justification. He never set to begin the work of salvation. We add requirements of knowledge or of religious service, of fruitfulness, of works of righteousness that God did not require to save us. And I think what this does as Christians, it strips us of our strength. It strips us of our joy and our thanksgiving to Christ. We become weak. We become ineffective in our seeking to become fruitful. We end up gazing at ourselves always instead of looking to the right hand of God where our sympathetic high priest mediates an eternal, everlasting covenant for us. And this mindset of introspection quickly becomes a heart of legalism, a spirit of fear, Because our satisfaction in God and our assurance of what he has promised depends on our performance in the Christian life. And we find ourselves captive to the very same teachings in some form or fashion that the Colossian heretics used to ensnare the saints. Our good works and obedience to Christ become the basis by which we have assurance. And the primary purpose of good works becomes to prove our salvation. If we aren't producing enough good works, living in enough holiness, then we should not be assured of salvation. And this is all rather than good works being a joyful outflow of assurance in Christ. Good works being for the purpose of building up the saints to the glory of God. This is not how it should be. God does not intend for his people, his his blood-bought people, his adopted children in Christ to live in fear of condemnation. From himself or from man. God's design for the Christian is to have assurance of salvation. It's not humility to have a lack of assurance. It's not a lack of trust in self. It's a lack of trust in Christ. God intends for us to rejoice in salvation, to glorify God for our salvation, to serve the Lord with gladness out of our assurance. I mean, how can you give thanks to God for a salvation you are not sure you've received? How can you proclaim the gospel as the power of God unto salvation if you're not convinced of its power to save you? How can you thank God for his sanctifying work in you and in others, producing good works in you if, you, if all you find are faults in your Christian life? God's purpose for Christians is to live not in fear of condemnation, but rather to live in a reverent, thankful fear of their great God and Savior. I mean, think of all the comforting passages we have in the New Testament for this very purpose. We, we call our minds to Romans 5. Where Paul, Paul gives this, this sort of lesser to greater argument or, or greater to lesser argument. Where he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul tells us in the next verse there in verse 10 in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And Paul gives the Romans these great words of assurance and comfort so that they may boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Christian assurance glorifies God. That that is his desire for us so that he may be magnified. Paul tells us again in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later in the same chapter tells us that God works all things for the good of the called, for the good of his elect, all things, even their sin and their failures. Because as Paul explains, we were predestined not only for conversion, we were predestined for sanctification, 
predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And more than that, for glorification. Because all those whom God has predestined, he also called and justified and glorified. He writes there in prolepsis. He writes there of a future event in past tense because of how sure it is for the Christians. There is no doubt that those who have been justified will be glorified. And it is that certainty, that objective certainty, the objective nature of God's reconciliation of his people, which Paul, which prompts Paul to ask, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul comforts us again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, Consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. Paul doesn't say that we were foolish, that we were weak, that we were based or despised. But now after Christ that we are wise And we are strong. We're able to persevere in our own wisdom and strength. We are still weak. We're still foolish to the world. We're still despised. But as Paul says, by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We were never meant to feel strong or wise. We were never meant to feel confident in ourselves, but Christ is both for us so that we may boast in him as our assurance. That's why Paul tells us that he's confident, not in the Philippians, but that God who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. That's why it's Paul's prayer in Colossians 2 that that by God, their hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It is the it is the assured Christian who is confident in Christ's ability and willingness to save despite the Christian's insufficiency. It's that Christian. It's the Christian who is assured, who is fruitful. It's that Christian who bears fruit in works of holiness. It's that Christian who is obedient. It's that Christian that is faithful with the gospel and mature in Christ. That is God's will for you today, Christian, that you be assured. That you be assured and that all of those blessings which follow your assurance will flow to you. That is God's will. Fully believing like Abraham that God is able to do what he has promised to you. And that's the goal of Paul's imperatives. This reassurance here in our text today. I want to read that text backing up a few verses starting in verse 13. We'll read through the end of the chapter and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. But starting in verse 13 of Colossians 2. It says, And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. 
These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, I thank you for this time together that we have to study your word, to rejoice in your word. God, I pray that you would open our minds and our eyes, that we would see wonderful things here, God, about Christ. That our our hope and our affections, our joy would not be set on our spiritual lives, but rather our life in Christ. The one who is our life for us, God. Teach us what it means to set, to set our minds on the things that are above, God. Assure us in Christ. Ground us in his joy, Lord, that we may bear fruit in glory to the Father. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so we see in this text here in Colossians 2 another set of imperatives that, that coincides with the apostles' t- command to let no one take you captive. And here we are told, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. And I want to look at the reasoning behind Paul's commands here to refuse to be condemned, refuse to be judged as outside of Christ, outside of salvation or of the kingdom of God. The first imperative in verse 16, it's linked by the conjunction, therefore, to what Paul has already said. Really through the earlier part of the chapter, but specifically in verses 13 through 15. And in preparation for the accusations of those who would disqualify or condemn the Colossians spiritually, Paul gives the Colossians the grounds of their qualification, the grounds of their blessing before God. And this is a common theme throughout the letter, as Paul constantly calls the minds of the saints back to the person and then to the work of Christ. He did it in the introduction to his letter when he spoke of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Of which they heard in the gospel through the faithfulness of Epaphras. He did it in his prayer on behalf of the Colossians in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 1. When he reminds them that they have been qualified to receive the inheritance of the saints in light. That they have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom they have redemption. He did it in the Christ hymn in verses 15 through 20. He reminded them of the application and the purposes of Christ's redemptive work for them in verses 21 through 23. He reminds them of God's gracious choice to reveal the mysteries of the gospel hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the Gentiles through Paul, making known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in the hinge statement of Colossians, Paul reminds them that they have received Christ. In whom a few verses earlier it is said that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, riches of full assurance of understanding, are hidden. And now here beginning in verse 13, Paul reminds them again of the grace of God in Christ for them. When you look at this, the ratio of comforts to warnings, of comforts to convictions is is staggering here. When, When Paul wants to foster holiness in God's people. When he wants to correct error and the receipt of error, when he wants to stir the saints up to love and good works, the apostle rarely goes to the wrath of God. Though he does do that on occasion for those who would claim Christ and are not in Christ. But by and large, what spurs the the saints to fruitfulness is not fear of condemnation, but assurance of their justification in Christ. And because the assurance of the Christian salvation is an objective reality, we should be discerning about how we speak of of sin and of obedience in the body. If we only ever bring the threat of the law to bear upon sin, as if we are all still under the penalty of the law, it does little to truly foster holiness in God's people. If we constantly use the penalty of the law and God's wrath as the motivation for the gathered church to avoid sin, as if we're trying to ferret out the false convert from among us, we will neglect the actual source of Christian obedience. The obedience of faith. It's informed by God's moral law as the guide to joyful practice. And I want to be balanced, but I also want to state this as strongly and emphatically as Paul does in his writings. Really, when all the apostles write to the gathered church in the New Testament, the application is rarely, if you are not doing this, if you are not living like this, then I question whether you are really saved. 
The formula instead is usually since you are saved, since you are in Christ, since you have been justified. So walk that out. So live like that. This is who you are in Christ, holy, blameless, above reproach, as it says in Colossians 1. So live like that. So live blamelessly. Be who you are in Christ. That's the essence of all the exhortations in the New Testament to live rightly that we've heard recently. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, it says in Ephesians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is him who works in you. Both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's Philippians. Later in Philippians, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in all of those statements, the calling and the salvation and the reception of the gospel are not questioned. They're assumed. It's assumed if you have received this, because you have received this, you are then able to walk that out. It's the joyful grounds of Christian obedience. And just listen to Paul's words here in verses 13. And through 15, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul's not giving a a theological maxim here. He's not building out a theology of the cross. He's not formulating a gospel message for them to repeat. He is without reservation telling these fearful and discouraged saints to personally enjoy the covenant blessings they have inherited in Christ. They have life in Christ's death, it says, though they were dead in trespasses, acts of sin, of rebellion against God, for which the law was hostile to them. It demanded their death. And they were dead in their uncircumcision, the state of their unbelief, the state of their stony, unbelieving hearts, which made them unable to believe or to turn to God in faith, made them hostile to God in mind and heart, made them careless as to the consequences of their sin under the wrath of God. Though they were dead, God made them alive, regenerated them, gave them new hearts and minds free from slavery to sin and made them alive together with him. He does not simply pardon. He does not simply let us escape. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. There is no life apart from him. No refuge from his wrath anywhere but in him. And he has made the saints here to be in union with Christ so that they may live. And he did this, this work of forgiveness and quickening, not without justice, not without payment of sin, not by simply setting sin aside. Pretending as if it does not exist, but by blotting it out from existence, by nailing it to the cross, fastening it to the body of the beloved son. All sins done in the body by the saints are paid for in the bodily suffering and death of Jesus Christ. No sin is forgotten. Every sin is accounted for and then erased through God's just wrath upon the sinless Christ. There can be no payment, no more payment for that sin. For your sin, no more guilt, Christian, because it was your sin upon the cross. Not sin generally, not the sin of the world, your sin. We dare not preach impersonally about the cross of Christ. As Andrew Murray says, the cross is the pulpit of God's love for his people. You know, it's often a question of, of us who believe in Reformed theology. How could you tell someone that Christ died for them? How else could you tell someone that Christ died for them? It is only in believing the particular atonement that Christ took names to the cross that we can tell someone with full faith and confidence, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. That's what Paul is saying here. Christ died for you. And that ultimately, totally and finally is all that is required for the life of God's people. The cross is the redemption of God's elect, the basis on which the Spirit's work of transformation and regeneration and sanctification and glorification are applied. It's the brightest shining link in the unbroken chain of God's redemptive purposes for his people. It is on the basis of the cross and on the the empty tomb of our risen Savior that our assurance of salvation completely rests. All accusations of guilt and statements of condemnation against God's people end at the cross. God's holy justice is satisfied. The claims of the law and its hostility toward us end with our death to the penalty of the law. 
And finally, in verse 15, all other accusers are silenced at the cross as well. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic powers, the powers of Satan. He stripped the enemy of his prisoners. He has bound Satan from deceiving and accusing us any longer. We are not his anymore. We belong to Christ. He cannot use the law enticed by sin to condemn us. He cannot keep us from our king. He cannot deceive the people of God from all the nations. And Jesus leads his captives to freedom. This phrase, open, open shame, public display, it gives this, this picture of a conquering general or a conquering king parading his defeated enemies through the public square, showing how powerless they have become. Satan may rage against the people of God and persecute them through the authorities of this world, but he cannot harm us one bit when it comes to our citizenship in heaven. The accuser cannot accuse. He is disarmed. He is stripped of all that once was his. He is a defeated foe waiting for final judgment. And so are all who try to accuse the saints. If Satan is tongue-tied, so are his agents. And those are the grounds of Paul's imperatives here in our text. That because of the cross of Christ, a symbol of shame made into a scene of Jesus' victory, God finds no guilt in us. The law poses no threat to us. Satan and all who follow him have no ground to accuse us. And if God and his law and the devil have nothing with which to judge us, who is left to condemn us? That's the question Paul asked of the Romans in chapter 8 of his letter to them. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's answer to that question, who is to condemn? It's right here. Here and in the end of Romans 8. It's the same. There's, there's no one who condemn. Nothing that can condemn. Not the law, not the devil, not life, nor death. Nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come, not powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including your weakened conscience, Christian. There is nothing that can condemn those who are in Christ. And the command here, let no one condemn, is more of a statement of principle than a statement of responsibility. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, or rather, therefore, no one should pass judgment on you. No one should condemn you. Literally, so not anyone judge you. Paul's not instructing the Colossians or us as the readers to literally take action to prevent people from passing judgment on us. This is not a command to enforce acceptance of Christianity on the public, to have have a Christian parade down Main Street, to silence our opposition through arguments or intimidation, to pass blasphemy laws, or create social consequences for for speaking poorly about Christianity. The point is that we as Christians have no need to answer our accusers. Our accusers have no right to accuse us. The whole thing is invalid from beginning to end. I mean, the reason you see the movements and agendas of this world, it's about to be Pride Month next month, shout your abortion, these sorts of things, and any other kind of evil practice, the reason you see these movements fight so hard for acceptance fight so hard for celebration from everyone around them is because they know their condemnation is just. It's not right. Everyone knows inherently it's not right. It flies in the face of all that God has commanded, all that is good. But here we have no need for that. We have no need to fight for approval because we have been given it by God in Christ. Paul specifically here says that the Colossians are to heed no judgments, no condemnation, To let no accusation bind their conscience or cause them to fear based on questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here again is the Judaizing element to the Colossian heresy. Probably an emphasis upon observing the old covenant dietary laws given to the nation of Israel. A festival is likely one of the annual Jewish celebrations. Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets. If you've been here... um, For equipping hour, you've probably heard Justin teach on some of these. Certain sacrifices were made according to the Old Covenant law on the first day of the month, the new moon. The Sabbath is is familiar to everyone. It's Saturday, the day of rest for the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. 
And there are some today who would claim Sunday as the Lord's Day is the Sabbath and should be kept as some by Christians. So there's certainly no biblical teaching that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. What these things have in common is their transience, as Paul says. These things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The significance of these things as given in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant are derived. Their purpose is to point to what would come later, what has come in Christ. And observing, observing such things, dietary laws, festivals, the Sabbath, it's not inherently wrong. But to act as if the Old Covenant endures is to imply that Christ has not come. If you've heard Justin teach on Christ as the fulfillment of Pentecost or the Feast of Trumpets, Paul Priest on Christ as the fulfillment of the Sabbath, you know that all these Old Covenant ordinances were given to prepare the people of God for the true and the better in Christ. Christ is our true food, the bread of life who satisfies and sets us apart in holiness to God. Christ is our fullness, our celebration, our Passover lamb, the first fruits of our resurrection, the giver of the Holy Spirit. Christ is our Sabbath. Our Sabbath rests from all of our works, the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. The false teachers who are setting themselves up as judges over the Gentile saints here in Colossae have a criteria of judgment with a veneer of biblicality that misses the whole point of the Bible. Their requirements sound biblical. They just want you to be obedient to God's word, right? Those commands are in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament. They're biblical. But the, by the way in which they are used by these teachers is is not, excuse me, those commands, what not to eat, what not to touch, what not to wear, were never given as a way to be righteous or even as a way to be obedient from the heart. They held a rebellious people in check. They regulated a sinful flesh. They taught the people of God that something better was coming and that better is here. And has abolished the old covenant, expressed in ordinances, replaced it with a new and a better covenant. Those requirements are unneeded for the people of God. They're obsolete for the people in Christ. It is common for, for Christians, for churches sometimes to put, um, put stock in practices, certain religious rituals because they're old and bonus points if they're Jewish, right? And you observe a Passover, a Sabbath, a Seder feast, blowing a shofar, any other number of rituals is seen as inherently spiritual. Those are the truly mature Christians. That was the real spirituality, but we don't need something old. We need something eternal. We don't need something Jewish. We need something divine. Seeing that, as Peter says, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him, of Christ, who called us by his own glory and excellence. Not only do these teachers add a law where there is no law, adding to what is required to be faithful in Christ, but they seek to make the covenant promises of God's salvation conditional. The old covenant was essentially a quid pro quo, a conditional covenant. Do well, inherit the land. Do not do well, lose the land. Obey and and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. Covenant blessings for those who keep it. Covenant curses for those who don't. But God's gracious covenant in the new covenant The fulfillment of every covenant, the full expression of God's love and grace has only blessings. God's new covenant has only blessings for those who are in Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. The old covenant shadows have been replaced by the body and the substance. Those who judge the saints based on shadows would like nothing more than to draw your gaze from what is eternal and unconditional and set it on what is physical and temporal, what is outward to entrap you in an endless cycle of performance-based assurance, conditional security, trying over and over to perfect what has already been made perfect in Christ. And if it's not with Jewish traditions and customs, it's with something else, some other right-sounding but empty metric for gauging whether a Christian is faithful or not. And Paul mentions some of these when he warns again, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul names asceticism here, self-denial, literally humility, along with worship of angels and visions as, as things used by these false teachers to disqualify God's people. These are essentially authority claims. 
Their claims of qualification, they are intimidating to some Christians. I mean, these would-be judges claim to have superior virtue, superior humility, superior self-denial through their acts of asceticism. No one is more humble than these people. They claim greater wisdom, a higher spirituality, more Christian maturity because their study of the angels. Angels whom they either worship or who help them worship God. They claim greater and deeper spiritual experiences, visions, prophecies, revelations from God. They claim to have been transported to heaven, to have seen visions of hell. I was uh, preaching on the street one time and this, this man came up to me and said he knew that I was not a Christian. And that he was because Jesus had appeared to him and tapped him on the shoulder. I don't know how I compete with that. I was standing with a book. He's got Jesus tapping him on the shoulder. That can be intimidating, right? That's an authority claim, a claim of disqualification. These are the wise ones, the spiritual ones, the mystical and mysterious agents of the divine. Listen to them. They have have such a wealth of knowledge and revelation greater than you can get from reading that Bible. You have the dead word. They have the living spirit. And these things can be intimidating. There are people going up to heaven and other people going down to hell. And all you did was go on vacation. How do you compete with that? They see things you don't when you read your Bible. They have such a passionate relationship for these forms of religion with God. And you're struggling to read your Bible daily. To worship with your family. They are the mighty Christians, the studied Christians, the Marine Corps in God's army, and you are a private in the spiritual infantry. But Paul tells us that these claims are nothing but a grand show of an empty faith. You don't need their humiliations, their learning, their experiences to grow in Christ. You will grow the same way that every true Christian grows. By desperately holding fast to him as your wisdom and strength and joy. Desperately depending on a Savior who is compassionate toward us and sympathetic with our weaknesses, even as he transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. As you behold him in his word, all you need for spiritual maturity is Christ. It's all you need for spiritual maturity. You can go your life without a Pauline vision of the third heaven of Christ and see a clear vision of your Savior in the Gospels. You can go your life without knowing anything about angelic ranks or messengers, demons and the Nephilim and be a very mature and fruitful Christian. And someone who claims to to know those things, that you have to know those things in order to unlock the message of the Bible, to unlock the themes of the Bible, complete the circle, do these other things to understand what God is really saying. They're judging you based on a false criteria. They're judging you based on their own immaturity. We might easily wrap our minds around why worship of angels or emphasis upon angelic beings um, and emphasis upon visions and, and revelation would be damaging to the faith. But humility, what's humility doing in this list? Didn't we just hear a sermon about considering, our, considering ourselves less significant than others, having a, a heart and a mind of humility after the example of Christ? And humility is certainly not wrong. The error lies in its contrast with holding fast to the head. The sense in which it's used is not having a heart of humility, but a heart for humility. Taking pleasure in being humble, or more ironically, priding yourself on your humility. In practice, it's denying oneself of things in order to please yourself. This kind of humility, this lowliness of mind, actually serves to puff up the mind, it says. You've probably heard the saying from C.S. Lewis that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And this is the opposite of that. Such humbling of yourself requires a lot of time spent focusing on yourself. It's self-indulgence masked as self-denial, because as you consider yourself more humble, you consider yourself more acceptable to God. This is the fundamental problem with introspection. If you're looking inward for assurance of salvation, one of two things is going to happen. You're not, you're not going to find anything in there that will cause you to be assured of your salvation. Or worse yet, you will. Or worse yet, you will. The message of these foolish judges is essentially Christ plus. Christ plus human wisdom. Christ plus legalism. Christ plus mysticism. Christ plus asceticism. Humility. These teachers claim humility with a heart of pride. They claim greater knowledge of the spiritual realm, but possess sensuous or fleshly, unregenerate minds. They claim to have seen heavenly realities and know deep spiritual truths, but they know nothing 
of true maturity. And they keep others from it by their man-centered thinking, by this worldly wisdom. The whole point of these false teachings, of any sort of authority claim over you, is to get you to look at yourself rather than Christ. To disqualify you based on what you see or experience. To shift the focus from Christ to experience. Or as the NASB more literally um, translates disqualify here, to defraud you of your prize. To defraud you of your prize. That's what happens to us as Christians when our assurance comes and goes with our subjective feelings of our own virtue. Or our spirituality or the practice of our own spiritual disciplines. You fall into the state of constant self-assessment. How is my obedience? How are my affections? How are my spiritual disciplines? How do I look to others or to my spouse or to the church or to my pastors? Your confidence rises and falls based on your level of satisfaction with your own religious service. You lose sight of your one true hope. You cut yourself off from the source of your obedience, the source of your virtue, the source of your joy. You become vulnerable to man-centered teaching and to moralism because your heart is dissatisfied with the promises of God on the cross. And you reach out in desperation for any other source of assurance. I mean, if you feel more saved when you obey and less saved when you disobey, your assurance does not rest on Christ, but on your obedience, on your works. Your pleasure is not in Christ. It's in your assessment of yourself. You cannot be satisfied with Christ's unconditional promises that way. With his excellencies that way. And without that true assurance and confidence in Christ, you will not actually bear fruit. You will not actually become more holy. If you're not beholding the image of of God, the image of Christ, you cannot be transformed into that image. It actually holds you back from maturity, holds you back from sanctification. And you're left with nothing at all to give you confidence. No confidence in Christ, no good works, no growth, nothing else to make you feel saved. All that you have left is the appearance of good works. Faking it until you make it, because whatever does not proceed from faith, as Paul says, is sin. Your humility becomes pride. Your self-denial becomes self-reliance. Your experiences are false. Your wisdom is foolish. Your maturity and growth are actually a lack of maturity. I mean, do you want to be mature, Christian? That's probably a redundant question. Do you want to do you want assurance of your salvation? Do you want to grow and bear fruit? You have nowhere else to look for that than the gospel. You have nowhere else to look. No shadows, no other mediators, no visions, no experiences, no works of, of obedience, no other revelation, no other doctrine. I mean, I've heard it said from time to time. And I've probably been guilty of saying the same thing. I wish we spent more time digging into some deeper things here in the pulpit. We just hear the gospel over and over again. I wish we could get into some more advanced doctrine, some deeper theology. And that reveals what is an exceedingly foolish way of thinking. There is no deeper doctrine than the gospel. There is no richer theology than the theology of the cross. Neither is there any other source of true assurance. There's no higher or clearer revelation of God in all of his attributes and sovereign purposes than at the cross of Christ. Where else is God's holiness and his justice and his wrath upon sin better displayed than at the cross? Where else is his sovereignty and providence and power and glory shown together? Where is his love and his mercy, his covenant faithfulness? And his compassion and his grace upon sinners better displayed than at the cross. There should be our focus in our study. At the cross is displayed all of God's attributes all together. There is no more glorious doctrine, no more glorious message than the message of the cross and the empty tomb, the gospel. At the cross are all the doctrines of scripture. If you want to know the Bible better, you need to know the gospel better. Maturity and assurance and knowledge and wisdom, true humility, a true vision of heavenly things are only found by holding fast to the head of the body. The one who is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. Growth in grace and expansion of confidence, the resulting fruitfulness of good works and joyful service only happen in union with Christ. I mean, look to him to grow. Look to him to be assured. Study him. Set your minds on him. And every good thing in the Christian life flows from that. From the head of the body who nourishes the body through its joints and ligaments. Paul's solution to the fear and the weaknesses of the Colossians and all the churches 
as well as the false claims of these judges, is simply again and again to give a, a clear vision of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The response to a lack of assurance in the Christian is not to try harder, to produce more works. It's to take your heart back to the gospel, your soul back to the worthiness of Jesus, the lamb who was slain and is alive again. And Paul's reminding the Colossians here of how fruitful the hope of Christ really is. And he shows them in verse 20, the futility of any other hope or system of belief in its attempt to produce any lasting change. He says in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice, even in Paul's corrective question here to the Colossians who have submitted to these false teachers, who have submitted to these errors, Paul does not accuse them. Paul does not condemn them. Paul does not judge them as unsaved. He reminds them of their union with Christ. If with Christ, or or rather better translated, since with Christ you died. Paul uses the language with Christ, in Christ, over and over in the book of Colossians to call their minds to dwell on their qualification. Where the would-be judges are saying, you must be this to be saved, you must do this, not do this to be saved. You must keep the law, observe the Sabbath, share this experience, have this vision, do not handle or even taste or even touch Deny yourself pleasure in God's good gifts. Pride yourself on what you have done or not done or seen. Make your own way to God through self-made religion. To all of that, Paul says, no, you must be in Christ. That's it. That is all that is required for the Christian. All that is, re- all that is required for Christian assurance. And this self-made religion, it's all about regulating sin. About regulating the flesh. Regulating the habits and consumptions of the body. Moderation in everything. Outward and physical, as if the life, as if the physical matter was ever the source of corruption or immorality. While the religious person indulges in a, in the fleshly sins of pride and jealousy and rivalry, cooling their burning flesh for a few moments by comparing their works to others and condemning those who are not as advanced as they are. And they, they sound wise, as Paul says here. They have an appearance of wisdom. Didn't Christ call us to deny ourselves? Isn't this a biblical command to take up our cross and to follow him? And if this were the self-denial Jesus was talking about, this would be wise. But their self-denial is of their own making. They're giving up things God never told them to give up. They're denying themselves the things God never required of them. God gave them those things. Their will worship, as it's alternatively translated, is a choosing for themselves how they can please God. Rather than worshiping God in the way that he has commanded out of their pleasure in him. We have ingrained in us this concept that it is the most spiritual among us who cut themselves off from the world. Who give up everything. Who deprive themselves of basic comforts. And live a life of total poverty and abstinence. That was the monastic movement that swept Christianity for a thousand years. It became the major influence of Christianity. Sell all you have. Live on a mountain somewhere to obtain spiritual consciousness. Don't eat, don't drink, don't smile, don't laugh, don't be, be serious, be sober, be reserved, be stoic. And those things don't make you spiritual, they make you weird. That's all they do for you. <clears throat> they don't give you peace, they steal your joy, they make righteousness a matter of denying God's good gifts to his children that are meant to be enjoyed with thankfulness. Jesus' command to deny self did not really refer to temporal things, things that perish as they are used at all. And in fact, the self-indulging, self-pitying pride of these false teachers is the very thing Jesus commanded us to forsake. The very thing he called us to deny. The self-denial Christ commands is a forsaking of your efforts. A forsaking of your own efforts to keep your life. And, And it's commanding a full dependence on Jesus to be your reward. I mean, Martin Luther's freedom in Christ did not come to him because he was in a monastery, but in spite of it. It broke in and freed him. It was the joyous revelation of justification by faith alone that freed 
Luther from his pietistic self-punishment. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they are free from those desires. They're free, dead to that way of living and thinking and striving for acceptance. They have died to the elemental spirits, the elementary principles, the human fleshly principles of the world. And they should never have to submit to those arbitrary and degrading requirements again. No longer do we need to constantly ask ourselves, do I know enough? Am I doing enough? Have I experienced enough? Am I sincere enough? You know that Christ is enough. That is it. You know that Christ is enough. And the word for died here, it stresses that our, it is our union with Christ that sets us apart, that sets us free. The word is apathnesco. It's commonly used of someone who is drowned. Drowned as they have been baptized into Christ's death. We are dead to our sin, dead to the penalty of the law, dead to the flesh and the world, dead to self-made religion, to striving after spiritual achievement to make you right or reconciled with God and alive to God in Christ. In Christ, you have died to anxiety over the state of your soul. You've died to worry over the circumstances and experiences of this world. The very worst that can happen to you from here on out does nothing but hasten you home to him, but make you more like Christ. The very worst of your failures at this point do nothing but make you more dependent upon him. God truly does have a purpose for those who are his own, a hope and a future. I know we we cry out against the application of that verse in Jeremiah, right? But it really does apply to God's saints. God was speaking to his saints there in Jeremiah, and he's still speaking that to his saints today. He truly does have a purpose for them, a hope and a future for them, a future that does not depend on your performance in a conditional covenant, but upon God's faithfulness to an unbreakable one. God has staked his glory and his name on your glorification. If you've truly trusted in Christ, he won't leave that up to you. That does not depend on your performance. And the objective nature of salvation in Christ is not only the means of true assurance, but of true obedience, true victory over the flesh. Look at here at the beginning of Colossians 3. Paul grounds true obedience, true putting off the flesh in this. He says, if then, or rather since then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Where does our ability to understand and to pursue spiritual things or desire to to pursue spiritual things and to serve the Lord? It comes from the glorious objective reality of our co-resurrection with Christ. Since you have been raised with Christ, since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, from where does our freedom from sin come from our union with him in his death? What is the source of our joyful obedience, our unbreakable confidence It is our being hidden with Christ in God, preserved, protected. Can Jesus be taken away from the Father? Then neither can we. Can death or life or angels, rulers, anything else in all creation separate us from God if our lives are hidden with Christ in the throne room of heaven? Will anything prevent the return of Jesus for his own to repay and to reward their waiting on him? There is nothing What kind of effect do you think these objective realities have on the Christian life? I mean, you are taken up into the relations of the triune God. Who can intimidate you with greater knowledge and experiences, greater access to God? You are a hair's breadth from heaven and reunion with the Son of God. What can man really do to you? What do you do when Christ has done it all? You will not be more righteous in heaven than how righteous God considers you to be right now in Christ. You cannot become more righteous. You will never be more loved by God in eternity than how you are loved by God in Jesus Christ right now. If you are God's, he delights in you. He rejoices over you. He exults over you with loud singing, it says in the prophets. Do you know that when you die, God will be more pleased to see you as a trophy of his grace than you will be pleased to see him? You, Christian, will not enter into eternity and stand before God and see a frown upon his face. 
He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He rejoiced at your salvation. See, the implication of the salvations of the angels rejoicing at the salvation of one sinner is not just that the angels are rejoicing, but they are rejoicing in the joy of the father. They are rejoicing because God is rejoicing. God rejoices when he saves you. Rejoices so much that the angels just reflect that rejoicing back to him. And heaven is filled with the roar of praise to our God. Your sanctification and your growth in the faith are not the assurance, are not the source of your assurance, but rather the outworking of it. You are free to serve the Lord with gladness. To rejoice in Christ, to put on the new man in Christ Jesus created for good works. You are able to kill your sin rather than regulating it. You are free, Christian, so act like it. You are united with Christ, so walk in him, Christ has put off your body of flesh in his circumcision. So put off the old man. That's the that's the rest of Colossians right there. Practical theology. Live like who you are. Enter into the joy of your master. All you have to do in this in this world, in this life is delight yourself with Jesus. And to simply do the things that delight him because he delights in you. How do you seek and set your minds on the things above? By considering your calling this morning. By letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And from that, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts to God. Heavenly thoughts come from the heavenly realities promised to us in scripture. Heavenly thoughts from heavenly realities produce heavenly fruit in the Christian life. So this this may sound unnatural this morning. But if you want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, if you want to truly live a life of holiness and obedience to the Lord, do not look at yourself. Look to Christ. Robert Murray McShane famously said, for every look I take at myself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I, I don't I don't know your heart this morning, but if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say the ratio of our looks to ourselves Versus our looks to Christ is not like that. It's not ten to one. Maybe one to one. Maybe even two to one. It needs to be more. I would hazard a guess it is that way. It's not as if we should turn a blind eye to our sin. As if what we do in the body doesn't matter. But ultimately, often, you are to look to the source of your assurance and righteousness in Christ alone. Our self-examination should not serve to assure us. It should not serve to make us feel better. It should only serve to make Christ that, more glo- that much more glorious and delightful in our eyes. That's the upward look. Martin Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I could be lost. That's the mind set above that will give you confidence to serve the Lord. Look at how sufficient he is. The immutable God, same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, and He will not change His mind about you. He's eager to save. He's just as determined to bring you home to Himself as when He was marching up that hill to the cross. He is just as compassionate, tender toward us now in our weaknesses and our needs as He was with the lame and the sick and the blind and the unclean when He walked to this earth. Our great high priest, our one and only mediator, sympathetic with our weaknesses. He knows our frailty. Look at him. Give thanks to him. Let your hearts be encouraged. Let your souls bless the Lord. Forget not all of his benefits. Declare his praises for he is good, it says over and over again. His steadfast love, his covenant love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations of his saints. Will he not save? He has said, will he not do it? You are qualified in Christ. Let that simple truth bear fruit in your life. So go to church, serve the saints, work heartily to God's glory, pursue righteousness, flee from sin, seek justice, walk humbly before your God, love your family, read, pray, disciple, evangelize, obey. Do all of those things, but don't do them out of a fear of condemnation. Out of a seeking of pleasure, a seeking of the pleasure of God, but rather out of pleasure in God, out of your joy in your reconciliation through Christ. That's the Christian walk. Enjoy Jesus. Enjoy Jesus and all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are yours 
in him. That's our calling to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's simply it. Paul Washer says we live our lives between two objective days. The day that Christ died for us and the day that he returns for us. So the day that we stand before him. Everything else in the middle is simply an enjoying Christ. Enjoying his victory. That's the source of our courage and obedience. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word and the promises that are found there, God. Sufficiently clear, encouraging God, strengthening despite the weakness of those who would proclaim it, God, from the pulpit. I praise you for who you are, Lord, that our our confidence does not rest on ourselves, on our ability to love you, God. That we, we are controlled not by our love for you, but your love for us. That we love because you have first loved us, Lord. I pray that we would walk not in fear, but in fruitfulness, God. Understanding that we are yours. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.